Welcome to the Water Pain Podcast. I'm Glenn Williams. And I'm Conrad Jacobs. So Conrad, nice to see you again. This is for the second part of our interview with Sophie Fatter. I was fascinated by many aspects of the interview, to be honest. There were so many interesting things that she talked about and so many things that hopefully many young people, adults, those around them recognise as well. Absolutely. And equally, the second part of the interview is just as fascinating as we get into really her rehabilitation programme and her recovery from chronic pain in the sense of her journey back to being able to live a much more normal day-to-day life and putting in place the pain management strategies to allow her to do that. So, shall we go back in and chat with Sophie again? Let's go. Sophie, at this point in the interview, I suppose, we've got you at what is really quite a low point, haven't we? We've, we can see the effect on you and your life and your family's life, and we can see that the medical treatment is not working and nothing seems to be getting better. But that hasn't been the outcome, thankfully, obviously. And you yes. made your way to a centre that was able to treat you. I don't know if you want to tell us how that came about. In that time that I'd been bedbound and that I'd been dealing with my pain, my body had forgotten to do everything. I'd forgotten how to walk. I'd forgotten how to even lift my head. And I was still in an unbelievable amount of pain. So our next step would have to be rehabilitation. And I would have to learn it all learn it all again. We were able to book an appointment with one neurologist in New York, and she was the one who helped us through nearly all of my treatment. We had to apply to a rehabilitation center. In the end, it was Boston who accepted us after three weeks. And during those three weeks, I had to do physiotherapy, occupational therapy on my own. But of course, it was two hours a day. It wasn't much and it didn't do much. Everything really changed when I went to Boston. And how was the treatment in Boston different from anything else that you'd done before? It was incredible. It was extremely novel and groundbreaking. Honestly, we never heard of such a a treatment before. At this time, my illness had left my body completely just unable to do anything. And Boston told us that they could get me back to normal with no needles and no, no medicine and no invasive treatments. And honestly, upon hearing this, I was skeptical. It almost sounded too good to be true because I didn't understand how I was able to get back up and to relearn how to do everything without some sort of miraculous treatment. I didn't understand. I doubted it. I didn't think it could work. And obviously I was proven wrong. So what did they say in relation to your medication, for example? Well, the first step of the treatment that I received in Boston was getting me off all of my medication, all of my strong prescription painkillers and everything I was taking to help with the treatments that I received beforehand. They needed to get me back to point zero before I could start building myself up again. In that sense, it truly was like any other rehabilitation program where you really just have to hit the ground first and then go from there. That was actually one of the most difficult parts, just getting off of everything and then having to really feel it all. Sophie, many of our patients say that having seen lots of different health professionals and having tried some of their treatments and nothing has really helped them. And what they say is that they sometimes feel a bit hopeless 
and demotivated and, and don't really want to get their hopes up any longer. What do you think is the role of motivation in pain management and pain rehabilitation? For this treatment to work, it is true that the patient has to want to get better. I wanted more than anything to be back on my feet and to go back to school. I wanted to be able to live a completely functional life. And I left that clinic, I think, 80% recovered. The rest of that 20% was a bit slower. I had to do that over the span of six to eight more months. But the progress I made there over seven weeks was immeasurable. I rolled in on a wheelchair and I came out able to practically jog. Could you describe the other treatments that they would have given you in Boston? They'd focus on occupational therapy, physical therapy, and cognitive behavioral therapy. And within all three of these domains, they teach us many different coping strategies to help us deal with our pain. So one of the coping strategies is distraction. They like to keep us distracted as we do physical therapy exercises, as we sit up or as we stand up or walk on the treadmill, whether that's with music or playing a video game as we're trying to stand up, it depends. Uh, it's a very important rule for chronic pain patients to keep them distracted so they don't focus too much on their pain. Another coping strategy was relaxation. We did some meditation when we were at this program and that really tied into the CBT aspect of it as well. Part of the coping strategies was also exercise. Actually, exercise, they explained it to me and I was honestly shocked by this at first, but it does help with chronic pain. And the reason for that is because if you're a chronic pain patient, your pain is very real, but it doesn't have a root cause. There's no acute cause to it, like a cut or a physical illness. It's just because your nerves have been sunburned almost. So when these patients are in pain, if they go to bed and they lie down, it's almost like conditioning your body to think, oh, okay, I'm in pain now and that means I need to rest. That means I need to retreat back to my bed. Actually, if you do the exact opposite, if you exercise, just light walking, just stretching, just a little bit of yoga or anything else like that, it's teaching your body that dealing with this pain is normal and you have to learn to live with it and push through it. So while it's not a coping strategy in the sense that it helps you deal and cope with your pain in the moment, it does help in the long run. So that was very important. Of course, our last coping strategy revolved mostly around CBT techniques. I really liked the way you explained why exercise works in chronic pain, but exercise often initially increases pain. How did you deal with that? It's all about finding the right balance. And see, from my point, from being bedbound, lying nearly flat on a wheelchair, their first step was to help me sit up. And from there, it was to sit up for more time from five minutes to 10 to 15 minutes. And then I had to try and stand up. Then I had to walk with a walker, like the old man in Up. I had one of the walkers with the tennis balls on them. And then from there, it was up to me walking on my own. When they say exercise, they don't mean intense cardio, running at a high pace on a treadmill or swimming 
lapse in the pool as fast as you can. They mean easy walking, stretching, anything that gets your body out of bed and conditions your brain to think, when I have pain, when I feel this, I can get through it and I can push through it. And Sophie, you talked about doing psychological therapy, CBT. Yes. How did you feel about that initially? Honestly, not very good at first because I had gone through a few, well, actually more than a few traumatic medical experiences, as I'm sure is the same with many other chronic pain patients. And part of CBT is getting past trauma and getting past this stage of dwelling. I didn't want to address, let alone delve into the trauma and the difficult experiences that I had been through. So while initially I wasn't very open to the idea, I began to see how CBT really was helping me get through my treatment. It was helping me expand the way that I thought, and it helped me to embrace the pain that I was feeling as just a small part of my whole journey. And to, like I was talking about conditioning with exercise, CBT helped me to condition my brain into thinking that I can do this and I can actually move forward with my treatment. It helped motivate me, helped me believe in myself. The more techniques that I learned, the more strategies that I began to practice, the more interested I became in the entire concept of this new branch of therapy. My mom was pretty very into it as well. We used to always joke that there was six people at the dinner table and not five because Carol Dweck, the author of Mindset, would always be sitting with us. My mom read this book and she would not stop quoting it for, I think, six months. It was impossible. In the previous episode, you mentioned two specific medical traumas that you experienced, which had a big effect on you, understandably. Can you explain why you had to overcome these medical traumas in order to recover? I actually had to write about this in my book. The first step for moving forward in any treatment plan, and actually even with any plan or thing that you want to accomplish in life, I think, is letting go of the past and all the things that are holding you back. In my experience, dwelling on traumatic memories keeps you attached to them. And it's that attachment which keeps you from moving forward. So a key part of the treatment is not forgetting all these experiences and all the bad things that happened, but accepting them and then moving past them in a healthy way. There's nothing shameful about being attached to a bad memory even if it's a particularly painful one, I somehow found myself feeling attached and almost protective over these traumatic memories and these bad things that had happened. And I, I can't even explain why. But once you learn to put them in the past and to shelf them, then you can finally take the next step forward without them being weighed down on your back. That's beautifully explained. Really beautifully explained, uh, Sophie. Yeah. So Sophie, if we sort of go back to your treatment in the Boston program, is there anything in terms of the way they did pain management programs that you think you didn't find helpful? Yes, actually, it's funny that you asked that because 
there is one thing, and I didn't include this in my book for the sole reason that I actually didn't find it helpful, and neither did many of my friends who were also in the program. And that is actual just normal meditation. I found a lot of visual and auditory memory-based relaxation techniques very helpful. But for some reason, being in a setting where I would have to meditate and I would have to focus on my own body, my own breathing, that would just get me to think about my pain. And that would always lead to what we call a flare-up, just an intense episode of pain. So I never, ever found focusing on my body and on what I was feeling silently, especially very helpful at all. But I found other techniques to relax. Very useful. And you've mentioned a few times of the people that you met while you were doing your rehabilitation. Did you find being part of a group helpful? Yes, I did. I really liked how we were all in this together. And it was really amazing to meet people who shared similar experiences to you. It makes you feel less alone. And have you stayed in touch? I have actually, with one of them in particular, but we all keep in contact through social media. Even though I'm terrible with social media, we all do keep in contact and we try and see each other when we can. And so, I mean, you're talking to us today beautifully and we can see you and you look very healthy, but how are you doing now compared with those days when you've described when it wasn't so good? I'm doing really good, actually. I'm doing really, really good. I just graduated high school and I'm very pleased with my results. I'll be headed off to university soon and everything is looking very positive. What are you going to do at university? I'm not sure yet, actually, but I will study different things and I will see what I like. I do hope to continue on this path where I'll study CBT and psychology. Maybe in the future, I hope to go into medicine. We will see. I just know that this will be a part of me forever. So it sounds like your own experiences have inspired you. Yes, they certainly have. I think that's something that is very important in life, is always finding the silver lining. Even though this thing happened, my family and I are closer, and... These experiences have made me who I am today. So even though I'd like to not, it's so funny, even though I'd like to not have experienced them, now that I'm at a place where I'm okay, I don't want to change what's in the past. So one of the things you just talked about inspiring, you've written a book, which we sort of mentioned a couple of times. So what made you write it? And tell us a little bit more about the book. Well, I wrote and Kites because I wish I could have used it when I was experiencing the treatment myself. At that time, many books for coping with chronic pain did exist, but there were absolutely none that my family found that were addressed particularly to teenagers. So I just wanted to create something that was relatable, easy to read, and that would be able to connect to other patients, make them feel like they were part of a community because that's how I felt when I entered this program. And I saw seven other patients who, like me, were just trying to get back to their normal lives. And so what do you hope for the book? I hope it helps people. I hope that whoever reads it will, like I said, feel less alone. And I would love to help it start some kind of community and help this book raise awareness 
for chronic pain in teenagers. It's a real issue. And I think that it's something that's not addressed as much as it should be, because as I explained before, it doesn't have an acute cause, but that doesn't make the pain any less real. And that's why so many chronic pain patients struggle with dealing the fact that they experience this every day, because there's nothing that they can do to stop it. And in my experience, there's almost a certain sense of shame or embarrassment that comes with it. It shouldn't be there, but for me, at least there was. Could you expand a little bit on why you feel embarrassed almost to have chronic pain? It's not a feeling of embarrassment in the sense that I'm embarrassed of what I've gone through or my treatment at all. It's just hard for chronic pain patients to accept that they're dealing with something that they can't show to anybody. When somebody comes into the ER and they have a broken leg, they can be yelling, they can be crying, and everyone around them will accept it because they have a broken leg. But with chronic pain patients, I have spent my fair share of nights yelling or crying. And that is sometimes followed by embarrassment because I have nothing to show for it. I have nothing to prove how much pain I just went through. And that's something that I did struggle with a lot, especially when my mother would tell me she would love to take my pain away. And I would tell her, no, I'd never want her to experience it. At the same time, it would be nice if somebody could share in it for just a little bit to understand. Mm, exactly. Sophie, could you explain the kite metaphor to us? Yes, of course. So essentially, it's all about distraction. Thinking about the pain makes the pain worse. And so I needed a new word in my book for pain that would subvert the negative subliminal messaging surrounding the word pain. At my center, we were never allowed to use the word pain because, as I said, thinking about it makes the pain worse. Kites was the perfect metaphor for me because like a kite, a chronic pain patient is always holding on to their pain. However, they can release the string further and further away until it's practically out of reach. If they just unwind it and one of those fool things, they can just let it fly out until it's just a dot in the sky. I thought that really represented how pain is attached to you, but you can choose to control it with practice. Yeah, that sounds very nice. Can I ask a quick question about distraction, if that's okay? Some people distinguish between almost good distraction and bad distraction. And bad distraction is when people try to say, I don't want to know about my pain. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to try to focus on something else. Oh no, I'm still in pain. And good distraction is sometimes seen as you're aware of the fact that you're in pain, totally in tune with that, and yet you choose to do something else. Does that make sense? Yeah, I completely agree. I think that the first distraction you were talking about is pretending that the pain doesn't exist. It's like negligence. And the second distraction is acceptance, but at the same time, a drive to still push forward. It's just two different responses to the same thing. And that's what we talk about a lot in CBT. This feelings, behaviors, and actions 
triangle. And so when we feel pain, we have two options. We can either dwell on it, we can lie in bed, and that will lead down a negative path. Or we can push forward, we can make positive choices with coping strategies and with these helpful exercises, and that will lead down a route that will help us regain our full mobility and just get our lives back. So Sophie, just a couple of final questions, if it's all right. Has the writing helped you? Yes, I think it really has. It's helped me reconnect with everything that I've learned and it's helped me, I don't know if the right word is study, but it's like as the teacher, you can't exactly go against what you're telling other people to do. My book, what I've written, has become a bit of an incentive for me to stick with my treatment plan and just pushing forward. Initially, your pain management route was quite medical, wasn't it? Kind of, you saw lots of medical doctors. Yes. But then you moved away from that. In fact, you stopped taking your medication and you started an intensive rehabilitation program. How do you look back on that journey? Now I look back on it almost like it's just a distant memory. And I try and look back on it lightly, like it was all a learning experience. After I finished my treatment, I was prescribed medication to help me get through high school. But as I also explained in my book, these medications are nearly 80% more effective when they're taken in combination with CBT. So medication or no medication, it's always important to continue with the therapy route when you're dealing with chronic pain. Yeah. And are you able to say what kind of medication helped you? I actually take an anxiety medication, which was initially prescribed to help with the medical trauma that I had been experiencing, but it also helps to reduce the tension. It is important to be able to manage things on your own. At the end of the day, it's you and it's not the pills that are going to get you through it. What advice would you give to us as healthcare professionals? in treating people with pain? I would say to be patient and to let the patients in question come to you. Although we're all different, if there's one thing that we have in common, I think it's that all chronic pain patients hate when those around us assume that our pain is the same. So I think let them come to you, let them do the explaining. And if there's one thing that I've learned, it's sometimes in order to get somebody out of a deep hole, instead of calling to them from the top of the hole, you need to climb down inside, sit with them for a while, and then help them back out. Just be there for them. There's a beautiful um, YouTube video made by Brené Brown that's exactly about that. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. Somebody told me this before, and I think it really has stuck with me because that's exactly what some of my closest friends and family members have done when I've been going through my hardest moments. If they've climbed down with me and they've sat with me and they've just been by my side until I was ready to get back out. So I think no matter how much anyone around them is pushing them to work hard at their treatment at PT, at CBT, at OT, it has to come from them. And they have to give their all and they have to do that when they're ready and when they want it more than anything else. So sometimes I think it's more important to 
be there by their side than to be the one trying to push them along. And is there anything else that you think healthcare professionals should do or should not do? I actually really didn't like it at my own uh, center when they asked me how bad my pain was out of 10. Because in my head, my pain fluctuated in such a unique and complicated way. It wasn't about how bad it was. It was about how well I was dealing with it that mattered. So I would really be so amazed and it would just be incredible for other patients, I'm sure as well, if instead of asking, how bad is your pain today? We ask, how well are you dealing today? How well are you coping today out of 10? And then they can use the numbers because I think that's the scale. It's not about how bad it is. It's how well they're managing it. I think that's one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever heard for healthcare professionals. It did always bother me. And it just, it was very confusing for me as well because I didn't know how to put pain on a number. And finally, we just wanted to ask, because I know one of the things that you have used very well in helping you manage your pain is your baking and you love baking. Yes, I do. So we just wonder what your favorite recipe was. My favorite recipe is my dark chocolate, like a rich chocolate grapefruit cake. And my secret recipe made it from my mom once. My own recipe, completely mine, but that is my favorite thing to bake for sure. And one thing you're not going to share on air with us. No, not at all. I'm very sorry. I actually thought about including it in my book for a little bit, but I became too selfish to do that. That's precious to me. Well, one day we'll get you to bake it for us and we can all try it. Yes, definitely. I'll bring it by the hospital. So, Glyn, what is your favorite recipe? Oh, well, I, I, I'm quite partial to cake, but I had something last week called a fruit crumble slice with apple and blackcurrants in it. And I have to say, that's one of the nicest things I've tasted for an awfully long time. Yeah. How about you, Conrad? Yeah, no fruit crumbles. I'm with you. I'm slightly partial to banoffee pie as well. That's good. Anyway, look, before we all get too hungry, what we have to do is say thank you to Sophie. It's been amazing and you've been very honest and it's been a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to be here and to speak with you both. Bye, Sophie. Bye, Sophie. Bye. Well, Conrad, that was quite emotional, really, I think. A very honest, very open interview from Sophie and provided us with so much to talk about. But I have to say, I think the thing that just caught me at the end was your very bold statement about that is the best piece of advice you've heard given to a healthcare professional. I really like it. It's so common in hospitals and clinics all over the country, all over the world to ask people, how much pain are you in? Can you tell us, you know, on a scale from zero to 10, how much pain you're in? And pain is a very subjective experience, of course. It's not an objective test. And I know that in some places, this score is seen as an objective test. So if somebody says that they are in more than six out of 10 pain, then we should give X medication, for example. I think in the case of chronic pain in the long term, it's really unhelpful to ask about pain. I think asking about pain can leave people feeling helpless and as Sophie did at times, even blame themselves. And Sophie definitely said that. She said that she blamed herself for still being in pain. 
Pain is a big enemy, a massive bully that tells people what they can and can't do. And for now, in the case of chronic pain, the pain won't leave. So if you ask how big the pain is, you basically ask how threatening the bully is. How much are you overwhelmed by this bully? And that's not a nice question. Who wants to be asked a question about being bullied and actually having to give in at times to a bully? Horrible question. No, I totally agree with you. And, uh, and in some ways, you know, they always say that the best ideas are often the most simple ones. And it was just a, such a simple, when you think about it, it's such a simple thing to say, just flip the thing on its head. But it actually really chimes in with the way we treat mm. pain. You know, we treat chronic, that's the whole concept of our, or the underpinning principle, or one of the underpinning principles of what we do in pain management is to try and teach people pain coping strategies. And so therefore, we should measure what we're trying to treat or trying to, you know, instill in the patient. And so asking how you're coping seems like such a logical thing to do. Absolutely. It's one of the pieces of advice that I give to parents early on as well, is to stand back a little bit, maybe, and, and try not to ask too much about pain. So the child comes home from school. How was your pain? Rather than asking about pain straight away at that point, maybe standing back a little bit and, and talk about different topics. So one of the things that really struck me from both episodes in, in some ways is the motivation. Mm. Sophie seems to describe through the whole of her journey, even when the times were bad. And that always makes me think of the concept of readiness to change. You know, it's a measure that we use in outcomes when we're patient reported outcomes, trying to work out whether treatments are working or which patients treatments might work for. And anecdotally, it really does seem to be that if a patient has motivation, they've got far more chance of recovery than a patient who is lacking that motivation or readiness to change. But I wonder, Conrad, from a psychological perspective, can you explain readiness to change for us a little bit? I always think that readiness to change is a very simplistic concept. It somehow suggests that someone, or that maybe that there's even a skill at one end, you are completely ready to change, and at the other end, you don't want to get better. It's not like that. It's much, much more complex than that. I have no doubt that every single patient we see wants to get better and wants to be able to do things. So in that sense, everyone is ready to change. The problem is that there are always factors that go against it. Some of those factors might be mood, for example. If you're in pain and you're feeling very low and very depressed, you know, what do you do when you're feeling low is you want to withdraw. And pain makes you withdraw as well. So then the enemy is suddenly much bigger, pain and depression. And then also kind of if you maybe get a panic attack every time you leave the house, then that's another enemy to add on to, to everything. So what we need to do in pain management is we need to think about all the barriers to recovery and we need to try to address them. And sometimes we can address the barriers, sometimes we can't. And we need to learn to live with particular barriers. We just need to learn not to listen to them too much. So the whole concept of readiness for change is too simplistic, I feel. What do you think? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, fundamentally, we know that everybody wants to get better. Or we'll qualify that there is obviously the occasional patient who maybe that becomes more of a gray area. But it is getting them to that point where they can make those changes is often the biggest hurdle that we have. And also helping the patient see that. One of the very interesting things that she said in 
the interview, and for me, actually, one of the highlights of the interview was that she said, and I'm paraphrasing, letting go of the past and all the things that are holding you back, dwelling on traumatic experiences keeps you attached to them. And for me, this was definitely one of the highlights of the interview. And then the other thing that she said was that I don't want to change what's in the past. The experiences are part of me, suggesting that she's integrated what's happened to her, all the negatives into almost the story of her life. And in fact, she says that she's learned things from it. And it's really interesting that she said that writing about her experience has helped her. And there's actually quite a bit of evidence to suggest that writing about negative experiences in life helps one to process that experience. And she says that writing the book has been a positive experience for her. And she also hopes, of course, that she will be able to help others with her book. So in a way, my message to people in pain out there, and in fact, anyone probably who's been through difficult experiences, is try to journal or try to write about it. And is it a magic cure? No, of course not. Of course not. But even if it helps just a little bit, 5%, then that might be helpful. Yeah, I absolutely agree, comrade. And I, her statement about, you know, having been through something like this, but then letting the traumatic experience go is so, so important because I do find one of the biggest barriers with our patients is they come in with this concept of, I was this before my pain, you know, I was whatever was important to them, but I was leading this lifestyle. This was me. And so the expectation is that that's what I need to be now before I can get better. Hmm. And it's not that, is it? We all have to try and help them accept that, okay, we understand that we want you to try and get back towards that or get back towards whatever is important for you now, but we are where we are today and let's try and move on from this point. And I do find that if a patient and their family, very importantly, can appreciate and accept that point and, and want to move forward at that point, then you're really beginning to start your journey to get better. If you've listened to these episodes as a patient or as a parent and are wondering what to do, really, that you want to recover yourself or you want your child to recover, then our advice would be to talk to your healthcare provider, of course, and to ask for a pain management program, pediatric pain management program, or if you're an adult, an adult pain management program. There's a list of pediatric pain management programs available on a website, and I will leave a link to this website in the podcast notes. So if you have any thoughts about this episode or any of our episodes, please contact us at whatampainpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you've enjoyed the two episodes of this interview with Sophie. It's been a fascinating interview, really interesting, emotionally stimulating and challenging at many points. And we just want to thank Sophie for taking the time to do this with us, but also for being so open and honest in everything that she said in reflecting her story. We'll all catch you in the next episode. Thank you. See you later, Conrad. See you, Glenn. See you all.